Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whitehead and my guest today is Melissa Swift, North American Transformation Leader at Mercer and author of Work Here Now. You can find Melissa on Twitter at M.E. Swift. Melissa, can we start by talking a little about your career to date? In your book, you say that most of your career has been occupied by work that no one understands. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and I, I think that reflects, you know, for me, what, what really energizes me at work is getting to figure things out and working with, you know, generally diverse teams of people to solve complex problems. I'm a firm believer that all the answers don't lie within my own head. So I've tried to never do a job where that was actually the case. Uh, and, and perhaps I've overshot at times, you know, getting into emerging areas like selling carbon credits or areas that are just inherently, I think, sometimes confusing, like transformation consulting. But it's been certainly a fun ride. And can you tell us a little more about Mercer? Because not all our listeners will have heard of it. Yes. So um, Mercer is a, a consultancy that, that really helps organizations in three different places, right? So things around, the, and this is the area that I sit in, um, making work better. So everything from compensation and job architecture to culture and leadership. Uh, we also help organizations with uh, the whole benefit side of the world and really creating health and well-being for employees and with the wealth side of the world, helping organizations, you know, create financial wellness for their populations. So if it's something within the world of work, um, Mercer helps with it. So you open work here now by saying maybe if the everyday experience of work sucked a little less, we get more done. Can you tell us what you mean by work sucks and what is the evidence we get more done? It's interesting because in, in the study of work, one of the topics that's been sort of genuinely underaddressed or almost taboo is this idea of just the everyday experience. So we look at many of the structural elements, you know, we look at um, on a high level kind of are people engaged, all of that, but we don't really think about on a sort of a day-to-day -day basis do we have a good feeling or a bad feeling about the tasks we're doing? And do we see them as being connected, you know, critically to, to the actual outcomes? I believe that there's a possibility that we've created organizations in certain ways that are so complex and so confusing that the work of a given worker doesn't really, at the end of the day, tie to your profitability, your productivity. That link has been frayed, if not completely severed. And the interesting thing is the people who know it are your human workers. So that's where the work sucks thing kind of comes in is we have this experience of work where a lot of times it just doesn't feel quite right. You know, why am I, why do I have to pack so many boxes in an hour? Why am I in so many meetings? You know, are the things that I do really tied to the outcomes for this company? And so we, the humans are the canaries in the coal mine and we need to be treated as such. And when we have those sort of, bad, weird feelings about work, the point isn't kind of keep the lid on the boiling pot. It's let's let's listen to those and let's open up a dialogue about how work could get done better. While we're on this subject, could you tell me what your most enjoyable job or the job in which you felt most motivated has been and why? 
say that it's it's my current job just because I've over the years tested and learned on what makes a job fun for me. And I know it's a combination of intellectual challenge. It's working with people with really an array of different skill sets and capabilities. It's solving actual problems, be it for clients or internally. And in my, in my current role, I actually get to do all three of those things, but it's not kind of like, oh, this was a lucky thing. It's a lot of deliberate work on my part, having learned just what I like to make sure those elements are in place. Can we talk about performative work for a moment? Because that appears in your book as a major problem area. And first, could you explain for our listeners what performative work is and then why it's so important to hold performative work in check? Yeah, so it's interesting. At work, we always talk about performance, right? And when we think athletic performance, right? Who can run faster? But actually, a lot of the time at work, what we're doing is artistic performance. We're acting. We're not necessarily, back to that theme of things actually connecting to outcomes, not everything we do has an impact. Some of what we're doing, we do, and this is particularly prevalent in knowledge work, but it appears in every workplace, we're doing it just to show off. And, you know, that sounds really innocuous, except it chews up time, it chews up other people's time, it creates bad DEI outcomes, because oftentimes people from overrepresented groups are the best at acting what work should be like. And so that's why it's critically important to kind of get performative work in check, that if we didn't need that that perform that artistic performance of work, we'd have fewer meetings, right? We'd We'd have that time for other things, and we'd have a better bead on who actually does the outcome producing work, which is oftentimes not the group that's good at performing it. You say immigration, migration and incarceration might be affecting your workplace and workforce more than you thought. Can you unpack that for us? Let's start with immigration. Um, this idea of what is the contribution of foreign born workers and how do we better incorporate them in, into workplaces is a, a truly interesting one as you know we see more and more different flows of talent around the globe. It's interesting because a lot of times organizations will hire a worker who speaks the local language and figure they'll train them on the skills rather than hiring somebody who has the actually harder to train for skills and teach them the local language. So we make some simple choices like that and we assume those are the right choices, right? We're not trying to make bad choices. These are just long-standing grooves that we're in. But there's, there's kind of incredible populations of foreign-born workers who are either not hired or not really included in workplaces. Um, it's interesting, probably that's the part of the book that I've gotten the most personal feedback on is folks telling me, oh my goodness, when you listed out those microaggressions that I face as a foreign-born worker in the workplace, I've every one of those, that's that's happened to me, that, you know, mispronouncing my name or you speak English really well. Or, and it's, it's fascinating that that kind of hit such a nerve because I think it's a population that, that's underattended to. Similarly, in, in, and this varies a lot by country, the dynamic around hiring formerly incarcerated workers, I think, is an interesting one. And this is one where we're seeing organizations really dive in and say, OK, if we're going to be in a longstanding structural labor crisis, again, those longstanding groups and those long held biases about if somebody has been incarcerated, they are not ever going to be a good employee. There's plenty of data to the contrary. There are organizations that have done this for decades. Mm -hmm. And it's just again, it's just a long held bias. 
And then finally, migration, as we have this big debate about remote work, not remote work, et cetera. Again, really forward-thinking smart companies are saying, maybe I need to go to where the talent is. So as, as a, for instance, some of my colleagues who do location strategy work have said, they are seeing companies move back into high cost locations because those have the pool of really skilled up workers that they're looking for, that it's not worth kind of the savings to be in the small town where you don't necessarily have the right talent. It's better to be in sometimes kind of a, a larger jurisdiction that has that pool, even if you're paying a little more and, and maybe competing a bit more as well. So those are kind of three frame changers you can use on workforce level uh, that are quite powerful. In the book, you say data tells us that HR is starving, misdirected and overloaded. Why is that and what needs to be done to put that right? So number one, HR just doesn't have enough people. If functions like finance or IT have, let's say, you know, one person per 30 employees, HR has one person per 90 employees. There's something fundamentally off about that, right? So they're just understaffed. And then there's the question of, you know, what are they meant to be actually doing? What is the true focus of HR? And it's interesting. And, I, you know, I work with a ton, a ton of HR professionals in my day to day work, and they're all to some degree caught in this squeeze of generally too many central priorities and then generally too many grassroots priorities bubbling up from the populations they serve. And that sort of inability to kind of winnow down priorities and also to get HR out of transactional work. If you think about the, the strides we've made in HR tech are amazing. But again, when we studied HR organizations last year, tech is not being fully implemented, fully deployed, fully embraced. And so you've still got a lot of humans doing a lot of transactional stuff. And HR could be really transformative, but it's like the sort of the nose of the plane has to come up a bit. I found your view on technology at work interesting. On the one hand, you're a believer in its potential, but you definitely have a downer on many implementations of tech, as you've just said. Uh, do you care to say a little bit more about technology? This is one of those, let's say the quiet part out loud moments for me that, okay, there's so much technology can do at work, but our, our day-to-day experience of it, and again, this is if you're working in a factory or working in an office, doesn't matter. Technology is glitchy, it's inconsistent. We are using too many technologies at once. Things like needed cyber protections are interruptive to the experience. You know, I'm doing two-factor authentication over and over. Cloud deployment of software means that I'm using a different version of the software, you know, week to week. And we need to just pause and stop pretending technology is perfect. And, you know, in the book, I talk about it as couples counseling for humans and technology. It's, it's, a, it's a relationship that needs to be renegotiated. And I think there's a lot of power in that, but it, it means admitting that technology is kind of vulnerable and not exactly right. And that's, that's a lot of people are not comfortable going there. Chapter six is subtitled Combating the Great Resignation by Managing Work Populations More Thoughtfully. I would think that this is guaranteed to attract the attention of just about every CEO in the US and Europe. How can we manage work populations more thoughtfully? Some of it is really, I, I think, understanding that, that people's mileage varies. We want to have this consistent employee experience. 
And that is exactly the right goal. I am not, that, that goal is amazing. The issue is current experience varies so much among groups, you know, so as a, for instance, um, in the United States, African-American talent um, is, is just far less sticky to organizations. The retention rates are just much lower. And that, that showed up in our data as well, that fundamentally organizations are not forging a relationship with some of these underrepresented groups in the same way. So they're just starting from a very different starting point in employee experience. So again, think of that as some of the low hanging fruit, just do a better job with the people that already work with you. But it starts from, again, saying the quiet part out loud, saying, OK, we get it. Not everybody is experiencing this organization the same way. And that that's a big pedestal for leaders to step off of. And also that, you know, when we talk about bias, bias comes in in all kinds of weird ways. So when we've done analytics studying companies performance management, you almost always find these these biases and it's not necessarily you know this demographic group that demographic group it could be this performance management system is fundamentally biased in favor of people who have longer tenured managers right it's always there's always something when you pull a kind of analytical onion back and and saying okay we got it people have different experience and fairness is not consistent right fairness is a thing we have to constantly look at and fix and, and work on that's one of the ultimate solves because our Mercer research also shows that all things being held equal, there is sort of a performance premium to uh, worker tenure. So if you've had somebody agnostic of age who's just worked for you longer, they are a higher performing worker. So hang on to the folks you have. There's a lot of uh, strategies in your book, 90 in all, in fact, if you were to choose the three that typically make the biggest difference in a business, what would they be? And and, uh, in asking this, I appreciate this is not an easy question because context plays a part here. But what would what would you choose as the biggest three influences? Number one, and this is actually a strategy that I believe in so much, it's repeated twice, but we'll count it as one. It's it's doing less. That simply prioritizing and doing fewer things better really, really reduces a lot of the burden on on human workers. And it's kind of, again, it's the classic curse of the modern organization that we are trying to do too many things. We don't do any of them well, and we've created this dangerously intensified work and also increased the chances of misunderstood and performative work as well, because we're we're caught up in these cycles of activity that just more and more activity that doesn't necessarily, again, really tie to the bottom line. So my second one is actually related to that, because why are we why are we doing all this activity? Why do we constantly feel like we need to overload the boat and do more and more? It, it really relates to something that I talk about as the work anxiety monster, that it's that little voice in our head going, you know, people are lazy, people are slow, um, that kind of nagging sense that things aren't getting done enough, things aren't getting done fast enough. And then we do all these activities to, you know, what they say, activity absorbs anxiety. But actually what we need is a little bit of organization level cognitive behavioral therapy, deal with the anxiety, calm the noise in your mind. What are the things the organization really needs to do? And that's far fewer. Mm -hmm. And if there's quiet time in the workday, if there's space, that's, that's actually okay. 
that's that's good stuff. And often that's where innovation happens, right? That we don't need, you know, a constantly a, a sort of a taut thread that's more likely to snap instead of a little bit of slack. Yeah, I'd like to explore the work anxiety monster just a little bit more because I think whilst it's individual worker that en- ends up anxious, I wonder where that anxiety emanates from. Is it entirely the individual or should we lay some of the blame at the feet of management or is it the system within which the business works? It's all, it's all three. It's all three. What happens is it's in each of us, but to your point, managers have more power. So, you know, if I'm a line worker, my individual anxiety monster, I can drive myself crazy. If I'm the manager, I can drive 50 people crazy. And then if I'm the CEO, to your point, I can create a whole system that drives people crazy. And we see CEOs, you know, not going to name names. We see CEOs doing this in real time in the news right now. And that that's where I think one of the first angles of attack should be actually is on the systemic basis that I say this in the book, what assumptions have you made about how to fundamentally kind of your talent management systems that assume people are, are lazy or slow, right? And this could be how you do goal setting. This could be how you construct people's jobs, right? These are structural things. And a lot of times the structural stuff should be the first line of attack because the structures really deform our behaviors. And you can do the behavioral work. It's necessary work. But unless you do the structural work, you're just going to force everyone back into the old behavioral patterns. Mm, Sound advice, I think. So now I have a series of questions that I ask all my guests. What's your proudest achievement in your career to date? I would say the impact that I've had on other people's careers. I think in terms of, you know, helping them advance in their careers, getting them to work that energizes them. That's probably one of the things that I, I really look at and say that's it's it's it's, it's good stuff, right? It, it means that I've had an impact, you know, outside of my own little little patch. And would you be prepared to disclose your biggest mistake and what you learned from it? I would say my biggest mistake was when my daughter was very young, I I think I chose some roles where I was underemployed. And I thought that, you know, you have to make this trade off, right? You have to take kind of an easier job because, you know, you have this this tiny baby that you want to care for. And the reality was in retrospect, um, you know, you get some funny impacts. So for instance, in, in one role, I was in a workplace that was not family friendly. So I was literally physically sneaking out every night to, to, you know, go take care of my tiny baby. So, you know, that's, that's not helpful. But also, I think I underestimated the psychological impact of underemployment, that for somebody wired like me, if you're not adequately both challenged and valued, right, that has a really heavy overhang. And it's been very interesting with the book coming out and everything. I've reflected a lot on that specific period. And it's made me think a lot about kind of that that trough, you know, as I'm like a little bit higher up the, the career mountain now. And is there a personal experience that has inspired you on your journey? Yeah, I would say um, I, I worked for a woman named Mary Siani at uh, Corn Ferry, and she really inspired me because she had has still uh, this mixture of a deeply insightful sort of academically inflected way of looking at the work of transformation consulting 
married up with, you know, she was a longtime M&A practitioner, this really nitty gritty stuff about, you know, when organizations make acquisitions or mergers or whatever, like, how do you how do you get stuff done? And for me, that intersection of deep contemplative thought and real practicality, that's that's kind of become my North Star because a lot of times we're just too much in one world or the other. And I think she really showed me a balance. And is there a book, podcast or video that you'd recommend to aspiring leaders? <laughs> yes. So <laughs> I have the book right right here. I'm, I'm, I'm waving it. I don't know if you can see it, but it's Bob Sutton's The No Asshole Rule. This is literally the book that I keep next to my computer and in tense situations, I have been known to wave it at people. And it, it really represents one of my core views that all this stuff we want to accomplish, as long as we tolerate toxic behaviors, it's never going to happen. So the thing that is the non-negotiable, right? It's, it's no assholes. It's no toxicity. That's brilliant. What does your self-care regime look like? You know, I, I do something that I love and I hate. I uh, get up at 6.15 every morning and I go for a run. And every it is a short run. It's like 20 minutes, you know, two miles, right? Nothing to write home about for a real runner. But I do it every single morning. I've done it like something like, you know, 800 days in a row, 900 days in a row. And for me, that kind of hit of adrenaline, and it's, it's good for anxiety because things that get your heart rate up, apparently it simulates feeling anxious and your body then kind of feels better about it, right? So I just, I start my day in a really kind of a, a good mental place. And, and that, that to me is kind of, you know, just the, the best form of self-care. Impressive. And finally, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Don't put so much weight on every decision. Because I, I look back now, a lot of times, you know, people will come to me for sort of career counseling and say, can, Melissa, can you just explain your career? Can you just, it seems to be a winding road. And I look back on it and I say, well, there's actually this very good underlying logic that there's a true red thread about sort of making the world better through capitalism and it's consistent across everything I've done. And, you know, you see that logic and consistency in the rear view mirror, but at the time I agonized over every little node and every little choice. So if I could tell my 20 year old self, you know, take the pressure off. You have underlying values and they're gonna come through. Melissa, thanks for talking to us today. I'd recommend your book, Work Here Now, to any leader committed to a more convivial and effective workplace. And thanks for listening to the Compassionate Leadership interview. You can order Compassionate Leadership, the book on Amazon. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash Chris Whitehead. Email me about the show, chris at damflask-consulting.com. And this episode was recorded by Zoom, and the music was brought to you by 96 Buck on CPU Records.